This is a painful declaration of independence. Hello, my name is Barbia Santi and I am a London-based artist, curator and writer. Since 2017, I've been working on Declaration of Independence, an ongoing performance forum bringing together women of colour to reflect on how the political affects the personal and how the social and cultural implications of historic declarations, policies and legislations impact on people's everyday lives. Between December of 2019 and January of 2020, Declaration of Independence went to Norway, to Bergen Kunsthal, a contemporary art museum in the centre of the city of Bergen. There, I did a series of workshops with longtime Declaration of Independence collaborator Faluke Taylor. It's not about changing We worked with about 20 women of colour living and working in Bergen, who came and shared time and food and stories, resulting in pieces about their lives and experiences of living in Norway. That was quite an experience, so we're going to reflect a bit on bringing together the, the Declaration of Independence at Bergen Kunstall that happened in January. Over the course of this podcast, you will hear from some of the women who shared their time and stories with us, and also extracts from the performance at Bergen Kunstall. The Declaration of Independence, of course, it draws the title from the American document, the document which is called the Declaration of Independence but of course there have been several different declarations you know and I sort of bring to the study of this everything from the American one to the declarations that the Zapatistas made. Initially it came from a poem by Ama Ataedu which is called actually as always a painful declaration of independence. This is where Ama writes about a kind of separation from colonial ruler in a kind of metaphoric sense, separation between genders, between man, woman, between black, white, and a space for Amma, because the poem is written for Amma. When I'm thinking through that, I'm thinking about this kind of, this metaphoric space which allows space for women or these women to be able to kind of declare themselves, to presence themselves to tell their stories. Well, one of the things that I am interested in and like to work with is the idea of collective narrative documents, which are kind of living documents, which are gatherings of stories that don't necessarily belong to one person and it's not necessarily a single author, but speak to a, a reality uh, and can speak to other people at a different time of that reality. Uh, and then they also, other groups maybe of women in this context, get to respond to that text and add to that text and weave in their own experience to that text so that it kind of lives. You know, too often archives are kind of dead places, aren't they, where, where things go to get dusty. If things can, can be reincarnated through our bodies and through the bodies of different women, all kinds of things can happen. So... One of the things I've been doing is is drawing out um, from the scripts of various performances uh, quotes and ideas which we are going to use as writing prompts so that other groups of women and other declarations, hopefully, can riff off of and feel the spirit of 
what has gone before and who has gone before so that we kind of somehow remain in connection, you know, and are more than just our single one oneselves. My name is Mechu Rapela. I am an art historian and uh, I come from Argentina and I'm, um, I live in Oslo in Norway. I have uh, two kids and a lovely husband and I'm the director of an artist-run space called Penthouse in Oslo. I was deliver like a package of otherness that somebody decided that I was going to have. And I started university and I thought it was me. So everything of my weirdness and Latinness and everything start, I start getting rid of those things. And, and I just dedicated myself to study and I finished my bachelor and my master's reading and studying and avoiding a lot of things, uh, the society in a way. I would, it was, it was very tough. <laughs> I remember you thinking my name was so strange. I knew you wouldn't remember it. I know you think you know me. I remember you talking about the time you lived in Latin America for those two months in a language course. I remember you saying you people, the Latinos, in Latin America one does or doesn't. I know you don't know much. And you might have done a lot of sizing, but it does not count for commenting in for continent, nor country, a city, neighborhood, or street. I know you know you don't know much about my country. I know you won't change your judgments. I remember you saying it was a sad place and I should be happy, feel lucky to live here. I know you will never understand why I'm not, or should not. I know you want to have this in common. Those first years with uh, the people saying, I've been doing all South America, it was just a reaction of, how can you think that you know a continent just for being a tourist? And they asked the most ridiculous question. It was just, the most stupid questions, like, do you eat bread? Do you know Maria Perez from Ecuador? Like Argentina and Ecuador are, or do you always wear lingerie, you know, Latino dancing salsa? I was disappointed and I was very hurt. I let go of the package that I was delivered at 20 when I came with this, this otherness that I got. I didn't want that. And I'm going to work every day to tell people who are getting these packages that they have a choice to say, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I don't need this. It is something that the structure gives you when you come here. I don't know how it is for people who are born here. But for me personally and the people who are migrating here, I really want them to understand that they, when they come here, they don't come empty. It's not only us who are coming here who have to integrate to the Norwegian society because that's what I did. I just got rid of everything that made me myself and I didn't manage to integrate. So it doesn't work like that way. If we are going to integrate and and then it's, I want the Norwegian society 
to understand that they have to open up too. Because we don't share the past. We don't sh I don't share the past within regions. But I might share the future if they let me. I would love very much to be part of the building of the future of the place that I've decided to be and live and have my kids. And if they don't let us and if they don't make space for us, then I will crack it open. I'm not waiting anymore and I'm not asking for permission. The togetherness is really important because actually the Declaration of Independence is not a declaration of independence as in unilateral, on your own kind of thing. It is a, a declaration of interdependence. As soon as you meet, there is the, the, the door is open. And, um, you know, as soon as we sit down to dinner, the door is open. The laughs are coming in, the, 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 the pain, the... The, the experiences, the, the kind of, uh, you know, some people arrived at this dinner, um, a couple of people who we never saw again, but it was just, that is part of, they are included in the project. The fact that we go to a performance, the performance is an output for everyone. Of course, there are people that, that perform in that, but it's the space for everyone. We are speaking in the tongues of all of the women that have been part of that. And also women probably that have been part of our lives before. This circle is our circle. It's our process. This is our process. And what we do might change. What we do is really in service of whatever's coming up into the room. So I often describe the work as ritual because a ritual will allow space for whatever comes up. Yeah, I think a ritual just requires the setting of space and then the seeing what happens. And I think what really strikes me each time in each declaration is how willing women are to bring themselves to this space, to do things which are they've never tried before, which are unusual, to move in particular way, to drink the tea that we brew maybe it's a small thing but I think when you've got a group of maybe about 20 women and we made our sorrel and ginger hibiscus tea with ginger and cinnamon uh, and everybody drank it people really want to be together and to join and try and cry of course and the the ritual of the tea is another example of things happen that you didn't plan for we had to have you know enough for everybody so we found you found these small cups and as I poured the tea and took it round one of them was leaking and I, I didn't realize so it kind of literally just dripped this red tea all over everywhere um, and that became kind of a bit of a theme for me as I was you know writing and working with other women on writing I kept thinking about what it means that this tea spilt this one cup yeah our offering to the ancestors you know and again it was something that opened up a, a whole discussion about traditions and various practices that have been handed down through grandmothers and aunts and mothers and sisters so the spill spilled if you like throughout spill the tea I pour the tea into cups, one for each of us, and an extra one that is cracked.
soaked and leaks. Tea spills for the ancestors. We drink and feel the liquid traveling through all those pockets of ordinary trauma lodged under our skins, suspended from- Oh dear, people think trauma is exceptional. The terrorist attack, the fallout from a bomb blast, blood on the streets. People do not see the ritual implosions, how every day you are trying not to explode, not to spill. I pour the tea into cups, one for each of us, and an extra one that is cracked, that leaks and spills for the ancestors. We drink and feel the liquid travelling through all these pockets of ordinary trauma lodged under our skins, suspended from time, in time, unheard, unheld, quiet, but not sleeping. Pockets with ears to hear when their own stories emerge from another woman's mouth. They recognise the words. They recognise the heartache, the fear and holding on, the strength, the softness, the truth housed in the body next door. Tongues loosened on sorrel and ginger dance, brewed in sacred space, share stories, music, breath, tears, exchange traditional technologies of healing, protection, eyes meet eyes in connection, reconciliation, and togetherness. Togetherness, another tea to live by. Together we are less afraid, less afraid to tell and to be and to love and to spill. So my name is Elia Messiah and I am an artist in Copenhagen and I just graduated from the Art Academy. <laughs> and I was at the workshop in November. That's almost a, yeah, a year ago. Yeah, and in Bergen at my gradu graduation show. I've just been building up how, how to actually just have a country with all its uh, beautiful assets, like um, uh, a, a national uniform or flags, a new national anthem. It's all fictional, but building these imaginary roots, but not down, but up into paradise. So my nation's name is Ilayin, and it means the people of paradise. There's no citizenship, there's no ownership. You can declare yourself a part of the nation uh, at any time you want. It's not located anywhere because this old nation, this one, is infected by a virus and we don't want that back home. So, so I made this whole screening and decontamination center, fictional trucks and postal service where I had this letter written from the nation. We the people think that you should consider how you are living in this nation and change your behavior. This nation, they hate you for criticizing it. While if you criticize my nation, I'll be taking it as a constructive way. I would understand why they criticize my new flag that only says alchemy and poetry. But that's what I wanted to say, but I can explain why. Just sit with me. But I think these old nations can't handle criticism whatsoever. And 
they are so in Danish it's stupt it's really good word it means that you can mold it when there's something something so big that has to with do with emotional and individuals and family when you can't mold that when you can't change anything it becomes so dangerous it just becomes so dark um and you can you can't really let any lights in cuz you just covered it up with all these beliefs and this old used language you need a new way of communicating with each other this language is between us here in Denmark especially is so dangerous cuz you can't say to them hey but i feel like you could do better but they think they did they done their best being in the workshop where we had to write something and read it out loud to the others that was the first time for me and i i just took it as a challenge in some way it just ever since then i've been reading my poetry actually i'm really bad at reading out loud but i'm trying to maybe borrow a voice from an ancestor or two or something but i don't know <laughs> yeah and I'm, i'm trying to figure it out but i've been writing ever since so yeah i love elia's idea of uh, the new nation with the new language and as a as a way to try to work with the constraints of this old language how do we navigate this these tight spaces it was really interesting to hear people using different languages speaking norwegian speaking in spanish speaking in english and i think it's often a sight of the what elia's talking about the kind of setness rigidness of things can often sometimes live in language you're coming to our country you need to speak our language and you need to speak it in a particular way uh so all the moving all the molding has to be done by you uh but the country and that's kind of what she's saying isn't it can't change you can come but none of this is going to be at all responsive to your critique to your experience uh, to your story in fact also the languages you bring and of course there were a few younger women who had either been born in Norway or uh, you know been there for a very long time who were fluent and could could do that and spoke i think of the kind of sadness of what had to become rigid in a way in them what has to be set in a particular shape and the loss of that that what you lose when you have to fix yourself to fit in i really hear what you're saying there i feel like it's kind of also part of this whole project what you're describing now is exactly what this project is right it's the it's a okay we might work with art spaces and i think we always challenge the art space whenever we've worked in the art spaces we work in art spaces that perceive themselves to have a flexibility particularly because it's a, a space that is forever changing but the form always stays the same right the form the building when we're entering spaces that have never really been made for us i mean whether that be the university the art space this country these nations they were kind of constructed in particular ways that never thought that we would be there you know we would ever be present within these nations they have to reform in a 
different way. I mean, I'm not really liking the idea of just like reform, but they have to reform themselves. Um, and this reforming is very uh, uncomfortable for, for, for these, but it takes a really long time. So I, I'm really interested when Daniela and Mechu talk about their children. Daniela speaks about, you know, the mother, mother tongue is Norwegian. It's not Spanish. Those children are the people that should be shaping this reforming of this place with its perceived openness are not able to do that. They are through schooling or whatever indoctrinated into a, into the the set the setness that you know that Elia is speaking about the kind of the stut that there is little space to breathe and 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 to change that. My name is Daniela Ramos Arias. I'm from Costa Rica, but I've lived in Norway for the last almost 14 years. I am a curator with a focus in art mediation practices. I uh, came here because I met a guy in Costa Rica. So my husband is from Bergen, which is where I am. We became good friends and together, and then I'm here. <laughs> 14 years after with uh, have two kids and our children are the result of two cultures that live in Norway with very little access to Spanish as the second language because it is the second language is not the mother tongue. My children uh, sometimes complain about the way that I show my passion. It sometimes looks as I am angry but I'm not. I'm just frustrated and I express it. The way that I see at least my husband, I'm not going to speak for all of the population, but he's way, way more paused and pedagogical. And I'm more like this typical Latin American woman that, you know, you want to say what you say. And that's how it is. And you do not complain about it because I'm your mom. Are you just going to listen to me <laughs> right now? <laughs> I do not want to discuss this. Like more recently, after the Declaration of Independence, because this is something that happens more now as my my kids grow they are in a school which is mostly white there is one black girl in the class for my daughter who has experienced name calling and then i am the one that goes there and fights with everyone and says why is this happening what are you doing to change this and i feel like everyone here is so suppressed and they're like letting things go it's gonna get fixed no it's not gonna get fixed we're gonna fix it I feel like I've been getting more and more and more and more angry the last months, especially after the Black Lives Matter and uh, everything that has happened this year. But all this that has happened and made everyone a bit more aware here in Norway of uh, racism that exists and has been quieted down or has been ignored has just been piling up and making me more and more angry and more feeling more like I have a responsibility to do something because I am in a platform and a position of power now where I can do things and I can use my background and my position to be able to facilitate. Something started with the Declaration of Independence, but also there has been world events and local events that have made that this is even more relevant and visible right now than when, when you came here, it was more quiet. Now it's not as quiet anymore. So within this performance, I suppose, when we kind of burst out in, in ways of the walls, burst in 
and you know become giants and invite ancestors in and all of this kind of stuff it causes that it causes a very kind of interesting disruption when you kind of hear of Daniela speaking about her children or a daughter in the daughter's class you know you just really hope it will change but it's not sounding like it because the young black child in her daughter's class you know is is many black children in their classes at this moment um experiencing exactly the same thing with no teacher taking any making any accountability for this this problem this situation where this child's kind of self-esteem is being diminished on a daily basis i have to big up barbie and the kind of community building nature of this project because of course after bergen we've we've still got our whatsapp group and so we get to see how people are connecting and i can feel the part of me that wants to be there mm. joining them but can kind of live vicariously through that can really get pleasure from seeing that thing made and seeing how it lives a life and continues and of course i've seen that in the projects we've done here as well you know really living communities it's not just about a weekend of workshops or a performance it's about what what can be built what can be made uh and i don't really like the word nation honestly you know it's it's troubling on in lots of ways but if we think about the nation that's not located anywhere elia's phrase then that kind of building that kind of community building that's happening well, I mean, globally now, isn't it? Because it's involved so many women from so many different places. Yeah, and the project has involved women who are connected to different places, but also are in different places. In 2017, when I first started speaking to people, there were women in Switzerland, Amsterdam, Brisbane, but they were not in Brisbane at that time. They were in the Seychelles. Martinique, you know, as well as London. I love the title of Lisa Lowe's books, The Intimacy of of four continents which actually talks about coloniality and how everyone is connected but our connection is through the dialogues and sometimes they're very small you know um you know kind of small offerings i'm thinking uh you know a prayer that came from a friend in new zealand that you know was contributed to uh the baltic um, declaration of independence but you know and how that gets taken into Bergen and we listen to that and that also brings some sort of resonances into the space and that goes on in in the ways in which these women are creating their own you know be it their own work like Elia and writing poetry and you know sharing that with people or in the kind of ways in which they're working independently in their work but also the ways in which they're collaborating if i have a hope it's not so much that things will be completely different but that as we spiral i think of us as kind of spiraling in time we find ourselves in in different places on the loop and more resourced perhaps to respond to and manage some of what we know but in a way if we don't find ways to as our good friend Gail Lewis says, you know, take steerage from the past as we're navigating towards the future, then we're not resourced. What kind of steerage do we want to offer here? What can we make and produce and talk about as we are now uh, that will be of use to people when perhaps they do come around to this same point again? And we have to think about this child in her class 
again. Yeah, that's where I kind of get my hope from, if you like, thinking about resource, how to resource something. Because it is easy to feel a bit powerless about 71 million people, what they did last week or the week before, you know, voted for a particular set of conditions. 71 million people thought this was a good idea. So I can't be that hopeful about certain things changing. But I can be more hopeful, I think, about what black women are doing. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to speak it. What black women are doing, what we are bringing together, what we are making possible by bringing ourselves uh, into space and, and bringing together. If that helps me maintain my energy, that's where I'm going to spend my time. I didn't know I was identity confused until people told me. I didn't know I was brown until people told me. My siblings didn't know I was brown until people told me or told them. It took some time realizing that I'm a minority. My mother is not a minority. She has not been questioned on the basis of her brownness in this life. My experience is different from my mother's, my grandmother's. They've faced discrimination and prejudice too, in other ways, in other forms, as single mothers, sole providers, full-time matriarchs. It's still hard, but less frowned upon. Our world changes. We change it. I, a foreigner, always, everywhere, how dare I love myself, my soul and being. I must admit this world is a rough one. How dare I be so ungrateful. Thank you to all the women who have been part of the Declaration of Independence in Bergen. Thank you in particular to Anine, Devon, Danielle, Elia and Metu for sharing their stories and experiences for this podcast. A huge thank you to Maria Rusinovskaya for more than facilitation, for more than creating space and for her unending generosity and dedication towards making this happen and supporting this process. Also, thank you to Scott Elliott and the team at Bergen Kunstal. This podcast has been made possible by funding from Reimagine Europe. Thank you to Faluke Taylor, who has been an integral collaborator in the growth of Declaration of Independence since 2018. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Femi Oriogan Williams. Thank you for listening. Oh, oh, oh.